Welcome to the Bankster Podcast. I'm your host, Alexander Badgett. Every episode, we dive into what I call the central verse. It's the incredibly fascinating and ever more consequential world of central banking. This is episode 27, The 12 Cities, Part 2. On the last episode, we began our two-part series on the Federal Reserve Districts by describing the unique role that each district reserve bank plays in getting physical money from the U.S. government's printing presses into our hands. We discussed the location and the interpretation of the letter and the number on the physical money that show which of the 12 reserve banks issued the currency. But on today's episode, we are going to continue the conversation of the reserve cities by taking a step back in history. In fact, we are going to go back 104 years ago, almost exactly to the day, actually. See, the Federal Reserve Act was signed into law by Woodrow Wilson on December the 23rd, 1913. But the Fed didn't open its doors the next day because, well, it was Christmas Eve. But besides that, because there were still a few things that needed to be ironed out. The act declared that a committee was to be formed. This committee was to be called the Reserve Bank Organization Committee. Not very creative, but wonderfully precise. Now, this committee would begin work just three days after the act was signed, on December the 26th, 1913. And they would present their decision on April 2nd, 1914, just 97 days later. On this episode of the Bankster Podcast, I'm excited to share the story of this rather boringly named yet critical committee and how they literally shaped the Federal Reserve, a shape that has endured virtually unchanged for over a century. The first section of the Federal Reserve Act contains just a few paragraphs worth of definitions and titles. Uh, The act then turns to the first order of business for the new central bank of the United States. You might call it a, quote, an important first step before we can get this whole central banking idea up and rolling, close quote. So, section 2.1 starts out with the following. As soon as practicable, the Secretary of the Treasury, the Secretary of Agriculture, and the Comptroller of the Currency, acting as the Reserve Bank Organization Committee, shall designate not less than eight nor more than 12 cities to be known as Federal Reserve Cities, and shall divide the continental United States into districts, each district to contain only one of such Federal Reserve Cities. Close quote. The three gentlemen assigned with the task of choosing these reserve cities were Treasury Secretary William G. McAdoo, a California progressive politician who would actually play a major role in funding the Allies' war efforts in World War I, Agricultural Secretary David F. Houston, an academic who had been the president of the University of Texas in Austin, and finally the comptroller of the currency, John Skelton Williams, a former railroad executive. So it fell upon the shoulders of these three men to select the newly created Federal Reserve's bank cities, The act itself had not provided much instruction to the committee in regards to how the districts be drawn. It says, quote, The districts shall be apportioned with due regard to the convenience and customary course of business and shall not necessarily be coterminous or align with any state or states, close quote. 
so they weren't bound to much requirements. The range of 8 to 12 had been a compromise between the House and Senate versions of the original Federal Reserve Act. And by the way, if you want to read about a president that truly put his full weight behind a bill, I encourage you to look into what President Woodrow Wilson did to get the Federal Reserve Act passed. Months and months of courting individual congressmen and senators, months of legislative compromises, and in the end, he even refused to let the senators begin their Christmas holiday until they had passed him a bill. So, and that's probably why it happened on December the 23rd. Anyways, if you want a a great book suggestion, I highly recommend Roger Lowenstein's America's Bank. It's an excellent history of the battle to create an enduring U.S. Central Bank. But anyways, back to the committee deemed with picking the Reserve Bank cities. An exceptional article by an economics professor at the University of Hawaii, uh, a man named David Hames, published an article about the work of the Reserve Bank Organization Committee. And I'm going to let him describe a little bit of the process that the committee went through in choosing the cities. Quote, They set an ambitious itinerary of cross-country travel, starting in New York City, January 5th, 1914, and ending in Cleveland, Ohio, February 17th, 1914, to take testimony on the location of district cities and district boundaries. This resulted in upwards of 5,000 pages of testimony taken in 18 cities from over 300 individuals, close quote. But traveling the country and, and gathering anecdotal testimony, well, that was actually not the only approach that the committee took. Professor Hames continues, quote, Simultaneously, the Treasury Department sent ballots to the 7,471 nationally chartered commercial banks to assess their preferences as to which city they wanted as their reserve district headquarters. The ballot allowed for the naming of first, second, and third choice. Close quote. So, after an exhaustive seven weeks of travel and data gathering, the committee settled down to begin reviewing and narrowing down the options. There were a few cities that were easy decisions. New York, Chicago, and St. Louis had been designated as reserve cities by the 1863 National Banking Act. They were shoe-ins. And additionally, the voting had been aggregated on a county level, the voting that was done by the nationally chartered banks, and the final district boundaries for New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia, well, they contained counties. Every county in the final district voted for their city to be the reserving city. So that made it easy as well. In their final report, the committee described six guiding principles that they used when choosing the other eight cities and district boundaries. They are a bit wordy, uh, but you are all listening to a podcast about central banking, so I'm going to take the liberty of assuming you can handle a little bit of wonk. Each principle illustrates an interesting point, and it's fun to think of the 12 districts as they currently stand through the lens of the original creators. Okay, so six guiding principles. The first, quote, the ability of the member banks within the district to provide the minimum capital of $4 million required for the Federal Reserve Bank on the basis of 6% of the capital stock and surplus of member banks within the district. Because remember, this central bank, it wasn't going to be strictly run by the government. There was a private and public compromise where they would be joined together. And this is speaking a little bit to that private part. Those 
banks would have to put up stock in the Federal Reserve. And it had to get over four million, four million. Each district had to reach that level. So it was important that the boundaries of the district included enough banks to get to that four million marker. Okay, number two. The mercantile, industrial, and financial connections existing in each district and the relations between the various portions of the district and the city selected for the location of the Federal Reserve Bank. Close quote. So, basically, they wanted to know where the industrial hubs are, where the financial cities are, where the manufacturing cities are, where the rural areas are. That was an important consideration. Number three. The probable ability of the Federal Reserve Bank in each district after organization and after the provisions of the provisions of the Federal Reserve Act shall have gone into effect to meet the legitimate demands of business, whether normal or abnormal, in accordance with the spirit and provisions of the Federal Reserve Act. Okay, that's one of the little more wordy ones. But basically what they're saying is the boundaries of the district have to be drawn such that the Federal Reserve Bank city can handle two main things. They can provide the currency of the nation, so they can distribute the currency effectively. And two, that they can provide appropriate liquidity when in need, which is that idea of the central bank being the lender of last resort. Part of the idea of having this dispersed central bank across the country was that there would be a need in times of panic, and that a bank just in D.C. or a bank just in New York wouldn't have the resources or the time to efficiently distribute uh, the cash as is needed uh, across the whole wide big country. So that was uh, that was number three. Moving on to number four. Quote, the fair and equitable division of the available capital for the Federal Reserve Banks among the districts created. Okay, so this is getting to the idea that uh, yes, we're going to have 12 and the boundaries may be differently, but we want the capital levels. We want kind of the, you can think of it as the money uh, to be evenly distributed. So that's why uh, you see more in the East Coast, less than the West. Number five, the general geographical situation of the district, transportation lines and the facilities for speedy communication between the Federal Reserve Bank and all portions of the district. Okay, so these cities had to be somewhat central and not necessarily central geographically, but central in access, wanting to be able to access the Reserve Bank headquartered in the city. Okay, the final, the sixth is the population area and prevalent business activities of the district, whether agricultural, manufacturing, mining or commercial, its record of growth and development in the past and its prospects for the future. Uh, this one's one of my favorites. So basically that they're saying in that one is we got to choose a city that's healthy and a city that's going to be healthy in the future. We don't want to put a, a reserve bank in a city that eventually is going to collapse and crumble and then they'd have to relocate and it'd be complicated. So although there you can never predict with 100% certainty where a city will be in the future, that was an important consideration. So now that we've covered a background for how the committee chose the cities, you might be wondering, well, which were they? Okay, well, let's list them in the order that the committee assigned them. So, and then you'll kind of notice that the way that the numbering works for the Federal Reserve Districts is in, is in east to west and north to south. So it kind of snakes. It starts from the northeast, snakes down, and then 
and then back up and then south and then north and south, moving its way across the west. So here are the cities. Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Richmond, Atlanta, Chicago, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Kansas City, Dallas, and finally, San Francisco, the 12 Federal Reserve Bank cities. Now, I would like to mention just two more points about the district borders. Point number one, there is a persistent theory that comes in and out of popularity with the cycle of the popularity of the Fed. Uh, Anyways, I was told this theory in my money and banking class in my undergraduate studies. Uh, My professor told it to us as if it were fact. Here's the theory. The only reason the Federal Reserve Act passed was because James Reed, a senator from Missouri, switched his vote from no to yes on the condition that two of his state cities receive the coveted reserve banks. This theory is widely shared and even shows up in a testimony of one of the authors of the act, uh, Henry Parker Willis, given nearly a decade after the reserve bank cities were chosen. It also shows up in a pretty detailed book by a professor from Missouri. However, the actual evidence, it really doesn't stack up. A number of recent academic studies have shown that political favors were likely not a deciding factor in the Reserve Bank cities. Those six guiding principles that the committee described, the 5,000 pages worth of interviews and testimonies, as well as the bank surveys, are sufficient in predicting the location of the Reserve Bank cities. Uh, One of the academic papers puts it this way, quote, the results confirm that reserve cities were selected systematically upon information claimed by the committee. Proxies for political and personal influence fail to improve the predictive ability of the estimated models. Close quote. Okay, so that puts to rest that theory. Now, the second and final point I have to mention is that there were a couple of cities that were especially disappointed and actually angry that they were not selected. New Orleans and Baltimore were the most vocal in their protests. So the following week on April the 10th, 1914, the Reserve Bank Organization Committee released a statement to counter the protests. New Orleans, they said, was not chosen because although the population was the same size as Atlanta and Dallas at the time, the growth rate of the previous decade or so had been much, much slower. Goes back to that going concern idea. And to the people in Baltimore, the committee said that they were not chosen because they were too close to Richmond and Richmond had received more votes from the banks. So that's a wrap for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about the committee that decided the boundaries and the Reserve Bank cities for the Federal Reserve System. Their legacy continues, virtually unchanged to this day. And okay, one more final note before we end, because I'm sure you're asking yourself, uh, couldn't they change this and couldn't they update it? Well, if you ask somebody familiar with the Fed, chances are they'll tell you what I was once told, that one of the main reasons that the Fed doesn't redraw the map to adjust for how the country has changed in the last century is because the act itself would have to be amended and that it would be too politically risky, meaning that if you go in and start changing where the the boundaries are, uh, then the politicians will want to change more and more and it'll just crumble because of when you open it up, a Pandora's box kind of idea. However, it is actually... That's false, because here's what the act itself says about the matter. 
quote, the districts thus created may be readjusted and new districts may from time to time be created by the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, not to exceed 12 in all. Close quote. So, when and if that ever happens is anybody's guess, but for now, the original committee's decision stands. feel free to drop me a line with comments and questions about the Centralverse or the Bankster Podcast via email alexander at thebanksterpodcast.com or on Twitter or Facebook. At the website you can sign up to receive the show notes to every episode of the Bankster Podcast. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me Alexander Batchett. I dedicate this episode to the Planet Money Podcast team as well as a bunch of other podcast teams It's been such a pleasure to be one of so many great people that are creating such incredible content in the podcasting world. Cheers to podcasts, tripod. This is the end of the tripod hashtag month, and uh, I just hope that podcasts continue to grow and expand. To the rest of you, thanks for listening. I'm Alexander Padgett, and I'll see you next time on The Bankster Podcast.